decade was the 1960s. The government-funded Voice of America, it's both a radio program and an internet site, describes the decade as the decade that changed the nation. And I think this is true. For a young generation, it was coming of age in the 60s. That generation began to eschew their parents' perceived innocence and their rote lives. They rebelled against their parents' so-called middle-class values. They included, this included, according to Voice of Mary, these are not my words, this included a rejection often of a belief in God, hard work, and service to their country. As a result of the failing war in Vietnam, the assassinations of John Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy, of Martin Luther King Jr., as a result of kind of the status quo's opposition to women's rights and civil rights, many young Americans began to question not only their parents' beliefs, but just beliefs in general, any beliefs. They rebelled, they let their hair grow long, they wore unusual clothing, to say the least. They listened to a new kind of music, and they began branding themselves as, as a different kind of people. Hippies began to rule the land. Woodstock became this symbol of rebellion against traditional values. Timothy Leary, right, first service, a couple people said, oh, when I heard the, oh, I said, you remember what Timothy Leary said? See, I know you're old if you do. But Timothy Leary, right, a university professor and a researcher, famously urged the entire generation to turn on, tune in, and drop out. Drug use grew rampant, the sexual revolution was launched, and it was underpinned by the saying of the decade, which was, question authority, any authority. Or as the Voice of America summarized it, in the 1960s, do your own thing became a common expression. It meant do whatever you wanted without feeling guilty. Which sounds a lot to me like a Christmas song we break out every year based on a Christmas prophecy the prophet Isaiah said of his generation the same thing. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. You see, the decade was the 40s for Isaiah, B.C. 740 to be exact, about 3,000 years or so um, ago when Isaiah wrote words to a people going through a similar tumult. That generation, too, had seen the promises of a prior generation extinguished by the realities of a new, uh, and who are now in a full-blown state of rebellion. Isaiah ministered at a time, much like in the 50s, he ministered at a time when Israel had reached its zenith of prosperity and, and political power. But the seeds of destruction had, had germinated in Israel and had, had, had begun to grow. And idolatry and, and its, its vices like personal morality, political corruption, distrust in leaders and government, all were part of Isaiah's day. Just like in the 50s with Vietnam going on one side and the Russian bear growing on the other. For Isaiah's people, Assyria was pushing in on one side and Babylon was growing to power on another. And as a result, God's people became disturbed, disappointed. They were scared about their present realities and they didn't have a lot of hope in their future possibilities. And they did what we so often do when we get scared when things don't seem to be going our way. Instead of turning towards God and seeking God, what we often do in times of trouble is turn away from God and turn towards ourselves. 
everyone turns to his own way. And so Isaiah walks into a very similar situation as what we just saw played out in the video. And if you spend some time in the prophecy of Isaiah, it's an Old Testament book, it's a, it's a rather large prophecy, you'll note that Isaiah, he kind of swings back and forth as he prophesies to this nation, as he says to them what God is, is doing. He swings back and forth between condemnation about the fact that they've just kind of walked away from God, they've given up on what the past generations believe to be true, they've given up on, on any truth at all and moved in their own direction. He, he, he swings back and forth between judgment Judgment of that generation and mercy and hope. He, he warns of God's coming judgment, but he speaks of a future redemption which is going to come about through this promised king, this promised savior. And as the back and forth of judgment and hope goes on and on, Isaiah prophesies about a Messiah in one of the great Christmas prophecies that all of us know. We write this, you, you go to the store today, you'll see this in the Christmas cards, you know, send it out with the pictures of, you know, the dog and the kids. We sing it in Christmas carols, but I'm not sure that any of us have ever reflected on this truth at any deep level at all or let it sink into our souls because he makes a profound promise to a hurting, confused, and frankly, people in full-blown rebellion that I think if they understood, I think if, the, if, if the, the flower power generation of the 60s understood, and I think if you and I understood today, especially in times of trouble, I think you would begin to think Christmas still had power, that Christmas could still change not just the world, but your world. So I want to look at it, this promise. Because to a rebellious people on the precipice of judgment, Isaiah offers this hope. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light is dawned, for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government, remember all the distrust in the government? In, in, in both in the 60s, right? The federal government was making trees and packs with all kinds of unsavory characters. Same thing was going on in Isaiah's day. This government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Now, if we learned anything together, church, uh, this fall, it's this. Names in the Bible mean something. We spent all of September and October looking at what God's name in the Bible is, Yahweh, and what it meant. Well, here we have this prophet Isaiah speaking to a people just like you and I, and he's giving monikers, names, to a coming king. Names that he would be called and should be called. These names matter. We shouldn't just sing them. So if we spent fall looking at the names of God, we're going to spend Christmas understanding the prophesied names of Jesus. I want to look at the first one today. Wonderful Counselor. You ever feel like you could use a good counselor? In the 60s, right, kind of our cultural innocence, it began to fade. Most of the stitching that kept the fabric of our society together, it began to fray. We moved from a decade in the 50s of peace and prosperity into a time of war 
growing threats of more war, violence, Vietnam, Oswald, Ruby, Sirhan Sirhan, James Earl Ray, civil unrest, and political instability. And we responded with not just protests, but with a turning away from all that we had once held to be true and widely accepted to merely personal convictions predicated on doing well, whatever felt good and whatever we wanted. Now, this is not unprecedented. This is what human beings fall into when history starts to change around us. When things, don't start, when things stop going the way we wanted them to go. There's an old saying about history. If you don't know what you are, doomed to repeat it. We do this all the time. Times of peace, you know this in your own life, right? Times of peace and prosperity, culturally, nationally, and, and personally, are often followed by what the Bible would refer to as a desert experience. Have you ever had that? Things are going really well. Like, things couldn't be going better. Now, if you're honest and you've, been, you've lived long enough, when things are going really well and things couldn't go better, what do you start to think in the back of your mind? Well, it's only a matter of time now, right? Shoe's going to drop any day. Now I can feel it coming, right? Like, we even have, we have sayings for that. And maybe this morning, maybe this Christmas time, you are living in the land of shoe dropped. You're living in what the Bible describes as a desert experience. No water, no trees, no signs of life. And the truth is that this is life. Life is hard. It is confusing. It is scary. It can be, it often is disappointing. And more than anything else, if you're not, I mean, you can grind your way through life, but you were not created to just grind out life. You were created to thrive in this world. If you're going to thrive in a hard world, there is one thing you need. The Bible says more than anything else, you need a counselor. You people need a counselor. So does your pastor. See, as a culture, we got confused in the 60s. In Israel, Isaiah's people got confused in the 40s, 740 B.C., and in the New Testament, the writer of the book of Hebrews, he writes to a people who in the New Testament, guess what they're doing? They're experiencing a ton of troubles and difficulties coming after a, a high period for them. And they too are in danger of not just giving up, but of turning away. And so the writer of Hebrews says to them, what they need is what Isaiah promised they could have, counseling. Check this out. Here's what the writer of Hebrews said to a people much like those in the 60s, much like those in this room. See to it, the writer said, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, think of the 60s, but encourage, that word encourage here, there in the Greek, that is the word parakaleo. Parakaleo in the Greek is the closest word we have to counseling or counselor. But counsel one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you are hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So the writer is saying to this people, you're going to, if you're going to survive in this, you're going to need counseling. Why? Because here's what was going on. He pointed them back a couple of verses before. The writer of Hebrews says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. He points back to the days of Moses in the desert. 
He says, don't harden your heart as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me. Though for 40 years they saw what I did, he warned them not to harden their hearts. The writer says that, that, that these are a people who were confused, disappointed, and suffering. They were lost in a literal desert. And he says to you and I, in our metaphorical deserts, don't, whatever you do, don't give up. Don't be like the Israelites from Moses' day who when things got hard gave up and rebelled and tested and tried and turned to their own ways. Life is hard. There's desert experiences. Don't turn to your own ways. You're going to get lost. The writer of Hebrews understand history. In desert times, the times where there's not only no water or no, no, no trees, some of you are in desert times. I have so many friends in this church right now that are looking for work, middle-aged guys like me. I can't believe I just admitted that. Middle-aged guys like me who are struggling to find a job because it's not easy to get a job when you become our age. These are desert times when there's no work to be found, when the doctor calls and there's no cure to be found, when there's no companion to be found, when I just keep swiping one way and nothing comes back the other, no companion to be found. The Bible says in these times, in these desert times, it will often begin to feel like to you that God is not even around. Remember in Egypt when the Israelites left, they were called out of Egypt? It seemed like there was a little bit of a high there. It seemed like for Israel, God was everywhere, right? All these plagues are happening. And then he leads them out and, and the seas part. God's everywhere. And guess what happens when they got to the other side of the Red Sea? Nothing. Wilderness. Silence. They cry out for water. They cry out for food. They're looking for direction. Maybe that's you. In the desert, it seems like God might be asleep. It, it seems like, maybe if you're honest, okay, and I, I've been in the desert. It doesn't only seem like God might be asleep. It seems sometimes like he doesn't care. But here's what you need to understand. Desert experiences are common to us. They're common to man. And they were common to Jesus. You remember right after the pronouncement of Jesus, big moment in the scripture. Jesus comes down and he gets baptized by John the Baptist. Anybody remember what happens? The clouds break and a voice comes down from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the pinnacle of Jesus' earthly ministry. Do you know what happens immediately after the announcement? Desert. 40 days. No God. No water. No food. Temptation. Turn your own way. Turn your own way. He's ignoring you. He's gone. He doesn't care. He's not listening. Take care of yourself. Do what you want. Desert experiences in life are not exceptions to the rule. They're common to this life, and when you're in them, it will seem like God can't be found. But if you have felt this way, you're not alone. You're human, and you're like Jesus. We spend a lot of time in, our, in the desert. This is the life experience. Oftentimes, we can get ourselves lost, confused, without hope. The Bible says you need a counselor. 
a really good one. Where do you turn for counsel? Who do you listen to? There are lots of people that offer it, but there's only one wonderful counselor. Life is hard if you don't get the counsel you need. Here's what the Bible says. Something happens if you don't seek the right counsel. If you just go through this life and you don't, you are not in communion with the wonderful counselor. Here's what the scripture says. Counsel one another daily as, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. If you do not seek the wonderful counselor in this life, you will become hard. You will become cynical. You will begin to distrust everyone. You'll begin to doubt things that you were once sure of. You'll get bitter. You'll stop trusting. You'll stop hoping. And you'll stop believing that Christmas could do anything but just ring up credit card debt. The only way of, to avoid losing your heart and becoming calloused over is daily, constant counseling. You've been given a great gift. As the Hebrew writer says, he speaks just like Isaiah to his people. One minute the writer of Hebrews is warning, warning this generation about how they've moved from God and his judgment, but then the next he swings back to the compassion of the Lord. There's this two-side thing to, to, to Isaiah and to the writer of Hebrews. There's this coming judgment for walking away, and there's this other side, but yet there's this merciful God. Here's what he wrote. He goes, therefore, right, therefore... This is coming out of don't get hardened by sin, deceitfulness. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, who is it? Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he didn't sin. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace. Why? To help us to help us in our time of need. Isaiah says to a people in the desert, a counselor is promised to you to get you through this life. The writer of Hebrews says a counselor has come. This is great news. His name is Jesus, the Son of God, and he is the ultimate counselor. There is none like him. Who are you going to? Who are you hearing from? See, when I need counsel, where do I go? I mean, are we going to go to my mom? She's slightly biased. She doesn't necessarily tell me what I need to hear. Hi, Mom. He's, this is the truth about the counselor that you've been offered. He has been there and done that. Many of you have said to me over the years, you know what I like about you, John, is you, you were in the real world. You, you, know, you were in the finance industry. You had kids and sports and all the rest. You're a real guy, and so I can relate to you. If you think you can relate to me, may I point you back to the King of Kings because I am speaking to you on his behalf. Jesus should wear a, you know that University of Miami chain with the big U? He should have one that says, been there, done that. Because that's who he is. He's been through it all. Ours is the only religion in the whole world that says, God, the creator, Lord of the universe, has gone through what you're going through. He's not looking down on you. Jesus has earned the right to be your counselor because he has been rejected, grieved, tortured, hurt, Jesus has been misunderstood, lonely, wept, poor, unemployed, betrayed, insulted, mocked and broke. So is Jesus. 
I mean, talk about a desert experience from highs to lows. He left the side of God. He left the throne to come to a manger and die on a cross. Jesus knows the highest of highs, and he knows the depths of your desert. He has been there. He has walked it. There is nothing that you have gone through that he has not tasted himself. He, too, knows the taste of his own tears. He's the perfect counselor. He is what you need in your desert. Don't get hard. Listen, please don't get hard. When life piles up on you, when you feel alone, when you feel like God doesn't care, you're going you're gonna to start, you're going to stop loving because you're going to feel unloved. You're going to shut down. You're just going to try to exist. Or you're going to turn to other vices to get you through. Don't turn to your own way. Don't look to the waters of this world to quench the thirst of your soul. They're not going to satisfy you. They're just going to disappoint you and enslave you. You don't need another glass of wine. You don't need more retail therapy. You've been given access to the greatest counselor available. Listen, who he is in the role is never better seen than when he interacts with, with the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Most of you know the story. She's, she's caught, the judgmental crowds, they have their stones, the accusers are there. And you know the line, Jesus walks up and says, let those of you without sin cast the first stone. But then I love the conversation Jesus has with this woman caught in adultery. He says, woman, where are they, the accusers? Has no one come to condemn you? No one, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. Go now, leave your life of sin. There he is, the wonderful, brilliant counselor. Tim Keller speaks of Jesus' counseling ministry as this perfect balance between truth and tears. Church, here's the deal. Sometimes you need to hear the truth, and your mommy's not going to tell you. And sometimes you just need somebody to cry with. That's who he is. That's who you have access to. Anybody ever, you know the story of what Jesus, he had, he had these three friends, Mary and her sister Martha and her brother Lazarus. Some of you know Lazarus dies in, in, uh, in the historical accounts of Jesus' life. And so Jesus, he's late coming to the, the party. And so he shows up. Did you ever notice that Mary and Martha say to Jesus the exact same words? Check them out up here. The exact word for word, same words. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Mary reaches the place, saw him, falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you realize Jesus responds to each of them completely different? Could not be more different because sometimes you need the truth and sometimes you need the tears. Jesus responds to Martha with this word of truth. He says, Martha, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. He who believes in me is never going to die. And then he actually gets in her face and challenges her. He goes, do you believe this? And then Mary comes along and says, you know, if, you, if, you had, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus doesn't say a word to her except sit with her and cry. Because sometimes you need to hear the truth. And sometimes you just need somebody to cry with. 
this is the counsel you've been offered. You will find this nowhere else in this world. Truth and tears. That's what you see at the well. Jesus doesn't say to the woman, oh, I don't condemn you, sin. Who am I to judge? Sin, Schmin, you know, I'm sure you are lonely and it's just another guy and not a big deal. If it feels good, do it. I know you're in the desert. Tim Keller, when he recounts the story, he says this. He also doesn't go and say, sin no more, but you know what? You're such trash. I'm going to let you go this time, but I'm watching. Be warned. He does not say, if you go and sin no more, maybe I won't condemn you anymore. He does not say, I base my love on uh, on your behavior. He says, I want you to base your behavior on my love. This is utterly perfect counsel. Absolute, complete hatred of sin. And at the same time, Absolute and complete acceptance of the sinner. Truth and tears. He knows her. The Bible said he sees her and he loves her. We talk a good game about loving the sinner but hating the sin. He's the only one who has the ability to do it. He is the great counselor. Now there's theology here. Jesus is absolutely committed to holiness and truth, and he's absolutely committed to love and acceptance. We celebrated this in communion. He brings these two concepts together, truth and tears. The heart of a a priest that represents people before God and the, the heart of a king who brings the law to the people, and he does both where? On the cross. On the cross, Jesus takes the justice and penalty that was due us, and you see his infinite love as it honors infinite truth. See, if it was just about truth, if Jesus' counsel for you was just about truth, he would let you die. And if Jesus' counsel for you had nothing to do with the truth and was just about mercy, no one would have died at all. You would just be, no big deal, go on your way. There is none like him. He took your condemnation at infinite cost to himself. Why? Because he's the only one who actually did hate the sin and love the sinner. He is the counsel you need. There is no one else to go to. So this Christmas, the question is, have you come to know the counsel? I mean... I don't mean just in a belief in a historical figure. Yes, I have this belief that there was a Jesus and that he died. I'm not asking about that. I'm asking, do you know the counselor? Have you heard his voice? Do you listen for him? Do you listen to him? Have you let him speak the truth about you to you? I mean, look, the cross speaks a lot about the truth of of our brokenness, our flaws, our conditions. Have you allowed him to speak to you, into your life because of his tears, because of what he's done for you, would you allow the only one who loves you to speak truth to your soul? Are you willing to not just turn your own ways? Are you willing to just stop trying to deaden the ache? You've been given access to the great counselor. 
Will you listen and will you obey? Look, I could get you the best counseling in the world. You could take all the notes you want. If you walk out of the session and you don't follow what the counselor said, it was of no good to you. You have to listen. The Bible gets this when it says that we should be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. This counsel, it comes from creating space in your life for the counselor, going to him, studying him, listening to him. Forget about no room in the inn this Christmas. We'll figure out Christmas Eve. Here's my challenge for you. Is there room in your life to listen to the great counselor this Christmas? Do not harden your hearts. Do not give up hope. Do not think it's just a celebration about nothing and it all has to do with consumerism. I know that's all true. I know there's an element of that that's there. Guys, you've been given access to the great counselor. Maybe this Christmas season, I'm going to close with this, you find yourself in a desert place and, and God just seems like he has to so many, over so, over so many millennia, distant, far, uncaring. I've followed him. I've listened to him. I haven't grown cynical. I haven't turned to sin to satisfy my fears or aches. But if you're honest, you're getting close. I want to give you one last promise of hope from the life of Jesus. Paul ends this section of scripture this way. He said, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Many of you know this story. Jesus wasn't really keen in his, in, in his earthly spirit to go to the cross. Fully human, fully God. The fully human part was less than thrilled. He prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. And he was heard because of his... Rep he was heard. Well, what do you mean he was heard? Doesn't look like he was heard, if you ask me. I mean, he got the cross. The cup didn't pass from him. Understand this for those of you in these moments of desert. Because if you're not in it now, one will come. God did deliver Jesus from death. He did it in the resurrection. He didn't deliver him in the way he asked. He didn't deliver him in the time he asked. But he did deliver him. And maybe for you, Christmas, this Christmas, that's where the hope needs to be. Because the Lord that you are praying to, the Lord that you are asking these things of, hoping he'll deliver you from this desert place, he has been in the wilderness just like you. He has been tempted to turn to his own ways, to walk out of the Garden of Gethsemane and get a little condo down on the Dead Sea. He felt it. He didn't get what he was looking for. He did all this. He went through all of this. And in the end, that desert experience, his time of unanswered prayers, it was all redemptive. In the end, he was heard. It seemed like he wasn't. But in the end, he was heard. Church, understand, I know you might be walking in a place where you've been praying, crying, yelling, and it seems like he's not hearing your prayer. God is hearing you right now. He is going to use this desert experience in your life as a redemptive experience, just like he did in the life of his son. He will. He is the great counselor. There is none like him. Band, come up this Christmas. I love how Keller put it when recounting this. He said, look, remember that Jesus went through all of this time in the desert for you. Would you not be willing this season to go through a little of the desert for him? Without turning away to substitute pleasures, 
but turning towards God, away from sin. Come and listen to his counsel. Listen to the wisdom, church, of godly friends. Immerse yourself in his word. Embrace his church and his people. Allow him to weep with you. But let him speak truth into your life. You need to hear the truth about yourself and he will be willing to give it to you. Soaked in love. You've been given a great gift. I love that it's a wonderful life when the angel says to, uh, what's his name? George, you've been given a great gift to see what life would be like without you. You've been given a great gift, access to the greatest counselor the world has ever known. Do you know him? Have you allowed him to play that role in your life this Christmas in a world that breeds desert times? In times of uncertainty, this Christmas, in the midst of confusion or pain, church, give up cynicism for Christmas. Don't get hard. Don't turn to your own way. You've been given a great gift. Access to the truth. A ministry of tears. All to lead you. Come and follow. Trust him.